please open your copies of God's Word to Romans chapter 11. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, you'll find that on page 946. And just to tell you a little bit of where we're at, uh, Paul has uh, opened up the book and he's told us about uh, everyone's need, a universal need for righteousness. And he says that it's not found through works of the law by um, all these different ways. Um, God is holy and pure and nothing imperfect can, morally imperfect can come before him. And so we need a righteousness, an alien righteousness, one from outside of us. And he says it's found in Christ through faith. And then we're in a section here, we'll talk about it a little more, but between Romans 9 and 11 where Paul is dealing with his own day and he's talking about um, the Jews, his countrymen, and uh, why there is only a, a minority that are following Christ as Messiah. And so that is where he's at today and what he's wrapping up. Uh, chapter 11 is the end of this three-chapter uh, topic with that introduction, we will read, this is God's holy and inspired word, Romans chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, 
so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them and I will take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for explaining to us what has happened and what to expect. Lord, we're thankful for the light of your word. And we wanna to come to you and ask that you would teach us about your word and that also you would help us to learn from it that we could apply it to our own lives. And so Lord, we'd ask for that kind of mercy. We'd ask that you would take this, that you would help us to hear, but not just to hear the preacher, but to listen for your voice. And Lord, we do pray that you would speak that you would condescend to speak to us and tell us just what we need to hear. 
We'd ask you to hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to start by taking you back to history class. What is manifest destiny? Do you remember? Well, during the 1800s, manifest destiny was the belief that it was America's destiny to expand across the entire continent and that everything between the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans should be part of the United States. America achieved this goal, but looking back, one of the tragedies of the era was the way that the native population was treated For example, in 1868, the U.S. government made a treaty with the uh, Sioux Indians to establish the Great Sioux Reservation, and that included part of the Black Hills, which is is in present-day South Dakota. However, in the 1870s, after gold was discovered in the Black Hills, the U.S. government demanded that the Sioux return the land And when they refused, the government took the land by force leading to the Black Hills War of 1876 and 77. You see, the U.S. government revoked their promise and unilaterally confiscated the Black Hills in clear violation of the treaty. Well, in Romans 11, we learn that unlike man's promises, God's promises are sure, and they are true. He will never, he will never go back on them. Look at verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In chapter 11, Paul unfolds a narrative of God's redemptive history, revealing his plan to extend mercy to people of every nation with a particular emphasis on the future of Israel. We learn that God keeps his promises and that everything is going exactly according to his plan. In the first part of chapter 11, Paul discusses discusses the state of spiritual Israel, highlighting the preservation of a remnant. And this serves as our first heading, preservation of a remnant. Preservation of a remnant. It's important to remember that Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome somewhere around 57 AD, and he's addressing questions that were emerging during his own time. Since the beginning of chapter 9, Paul has been addressing the question Has God's word failed? Has he revoked his promises? If not, if not, why is the church primarily made up of Gentile believers? Why aren't more Jews following Jesus? So in verse one, Paul, he just he confronts this question directly. Look what he says. Has God rejected his people, Israel? And he emphatically answers, by no means. God will never wholly reject Israel. Paul proceeds to provide proof, stating, for I myself 
am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, I'm a Jew. I'm from Israel, I'm an Israelite. I believe Jesus is the Messiah. In verse two, look what he adds. He says, God has not rejected his people who he foreknew. Now remember, foreknowing in a biblical sense goes beyond knowledge of future events. It implies a special relationship or choice. In the theological context, it means that God chose to set his love upon and enter into a relationship with certain individuals from eternity past. Paul reminds the Romans that God is working out his electing purposes in history, history with an Israel within Israel. With an Israel within Israel. Even when we're faithless, God is faithful. Paul gives us an example. In verse two he says, do you not know what the scripture says to Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. In Elijah's day, the majority of Israel had turned away from God. They had rejected his word, dismissing his appeals through the prophets that were sent to them. But not all of them. That's Paul's point. Consider verse four. Elijah states, I'm alone, I alone am left, but God's response is, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God reveals to Elijah that he has kept a remnant, 7,000 individuals who have remained faithful to him, refusing to bow their knee to the false god Baal. You see, this isn't the first time that there's only been a remnant. But despite Israel and how they were and all their sin, God was faithful. God is in control of preserving his people. And he's in control of preserving you, of preserving this church, this denomination, and you specifically, the church worldwide, of course. His plans are never thwarted, even when circumstances seem dire. This truth held in Elijah's day, it remained true in Paul's day, and it's, of course, true in our day. Paul confirms this in verse five. Look what he says. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Has God rejected Israel? By no means. Despite the vast majority turning away, there was a remnant that embraced Christ. And as Paul will go on to describe, there will be a greater number who embrace him in the future. And you notice that Paul states that that remnant was chosen by grace, right? Those are the words he uses. God's choosing is the foundation of this remnant's existence. 
If God chose not to intervene with grace, there wouldn't be a remnant. The remnant's existence is a result of God's sovereign choice and his unmerited favor toward a chosen group. Without divine intervention, humanity would be left in a state of spiritual hopelessness. But God did intervene, didn't he? He intervenes. He gives grace. That's his nature. To continue to intervene. And Paul wants you to understand the nature of grace. So in verse six, he adds, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. God saves people not because of their achievements or their inherent worthiness, but because he's merciful. It's a manifestation of his glory. He's good and compassionate, showing his favor purely out of an outflowing of his love rather than responding to human initiative. And his grace is offered to you through faith in the Lord Jesus. What happens if you refuse? What happens if you refuse to believe? Well, God might give you over to that decision. Paul says that those who didn't believe, he hardened, he, he confirmed. That's a judicial act of God judgment. You can see that Paul cites scriptures in order to demonstrate this. In verse seven, he says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. That is righteousness, right standing before God. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. The majority of Israel pursued works-based righteousness, but the elect within Israel obtained righteousness because they trusted in Christ alone for it. When people reject Christ, it's tragic. It's tragic, and yet, as the text continues, we see that God brings redemption through rejection. This serves as our second heading, redemption through rejection. Redemption through rejection. I like to cook, right? And I went through this period of my life where I was baking cakes, but not just baking any old cake, baking uh, multi-layered uh, kinds of cakes. Have you seen those? And, and it wasn't enough just to have multi-layers of the same kind, so I wanted each layer to be different kinds of layers, right? Like a crust and then brownie and then cheesecake and then regular cake. I know, I'm a little strange. So I was doing this and my 
my bottom crust, it was fantastic. It was a snickerdoodle, a 10-inch diameter snickerdoodle, and I was moving it to assemble all the parts that I had made, and it slid off my, uh, my cutting board and onto the floor. I was a little bit devastated, a little bit <laughs> perturbed, but fortunately, it landed on something below, so with some work, a little bit, of, a lot of work. I was able uh, to save it. I was able to save it. And we see something similar happens here with Israel. They, they've experienced a fall, but you know what? It's not the end of them. It's not the end for them. In verse one, Paul asked if Israel's rejection was total. Now he asks, is it final? And we see that Paul argues that Israel has not fallen to irreversible ruin. In verse 11, Paul writes, so, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Paul reveals a divine purpose in Israel's trespass and rejection. He says that through Israel's failure to fully embrace Christ, salvation has come to the Gentiles. It's come to you and me. And this unforeseen consequence serves a dual purpose. First, it allows Gentiles to partake in the blessing of salvation, expanding God's redemptive plan beyond Israel, and it opens it up to every single nation. Second, it's intended to provoke a, a sense of jealousy within the Israelites. The idea is that as the Gentiles experience grace and salvation offered through Christ, it will stimulate It'll stimulate a desire among the Jews to reevaluate and reclaim their own covenantal relationship with God. Paul's point is that God's plan includes both the Gentiles and the Jews. It's a redemptive strategy. It's a redemptive strategy aimed at rekindling a faith in Israel turning their stumbling block into an opportunity for reconciliation and salvation. Despite their rejection, despite their failures, God wants Israel to be saved. It's who he is. He wants the lost to be found. He wants to give grace he wants Israel to be saved. And so does Paul. Paul wants to see their salvation. In verse 13, he writes, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch that when, then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? 
If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if, it, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. Paul asserts that if the rejection of the Jews results in, the recon, in reconciliation of people from every nation, their eventual acceptance, their eventual coming back to him in covenant would bring about a profound transformative spiritual renewal akin to life from the dead. This highlights the powerful impact of the Jews embracing Christ, not only for their own spiritual restoration, but for the broader resurrection-like renewal of God's people. Imagine if the Jews just started coming to Christ in droves. Just a massive revival, a super majority of them embracing Christ from the heart. We would be blown away. We would be moved that God is pouring out his spirit on the world. That's what Paul is saying. This is what's going to happen when there is a revival among the Jews. It's going to be an encouragement to us. To us, And Paul reinforces this idea through the imagery of the dough and the root, the holiness of the root, which can be understood as the patriarchs, right? The founding fathers. You think of Abraham and Jacob and so forth. It's to be understood as the patriarchs and the initial, initial covenant God established with the Jews and it extends to the entire spiritual family to us. This metaphor reinforces the unity and the continuity of God's redemptive work, illustrating both that Jews and Gentiles are part of the same sacred narrative and the consecration of the one has a sanctifying effect on the entire lump or community of believers. Paul gives us an illustration there in verses 17 through 24. You see that he continues to talk about Israel's future hope with an illustration of an olive tree. The olive tree represents the people of God. The root represents the patriarchal promises. The natural branches refer to ethnic Israel and the wild olive shoots refer to the Gentiles. Paul wants us to understand that the Gentiles who were initially like wild olive shoots have been grafted into this cultivated olive tree, sharing in the promises and blessings of the patriarch and the covenant with God. While the natural branches representing ethnic Israel have been broken off due to unbelief, the Gentiles are grafted in by faith. God's redemptive plan accommodates both Jews and Gentiles, incorporating them into the same spiritual family. Paul wants us to understand that the temporary hardening of Israel is an opportunity for us to partake in God's promises. Simultaneously, he emphasizes that this inclusion is not 
a replacement of Israel, but an invitation for them to return in faith. What I want you to see is this. If you were a Jewish believer living in Paul's day, it's likely you would have been really discouraged at looking, when you looked at the spiritual state of your countrymen. And yet, as we look at this text, we can see that everything is going exactly according to God's plan. The same is true for your life. Things may be looking bleak, or maybe you don't understand what it is that God is doing in your life, or or how this thing is gonna work for good, or how long this season is going to last. It's hard to see God's bigger plan and purpose, but you can have confidence that it is working out for your good. God's good plan for you cannot be thwarted. And we see that as our text continues. God's plans can't be thwarted. And his plans include a future restoration of Israel. We'll see this under our third heading, mercy revealed and received. Mercy revealed and received. I remember there was a time in my life when um, they were throwing uh, surprise birthday parties for all kinds of people around me. It was like uh, every other month I was going to another surprise birthday party. And I remember saying, uh, that's never going uh, to happen to me. They're never gonna catch me with a surprise birthday party because I tell you what, you can see that stuff coming from a mile away. My wife got me a big time. I was not expecting it. Surprise, right? Well, well, Paul's going to let us in on a surprise, a mystery. In verse 25, he writes, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What is mysterious is this divine plot twist. Something different in the future is projected for ethnic Israel, something mysterious, a plan that no one could see. Israelites, a great number of them, will believe in the Messiah in the future. Now some have asked, is this ethnic Israel or does Paul have in mind the elect from both the Jews and the Gentiles? He's talking about ethnic Israel. It wouldn't be a mystery to say that God will save the elect from the Jews and the Gentiles. We know that God's going to do that because we embrace the doctrine of election. 
So Paul's talking about the future of ethnic Israel. But we should understand when he says all Israel will be saved, this doesn't mean every single Israelite without exception. He's referring to Israel as a collective, as a whole um, ethnic entity in a general sense. Paul's saying that in the future, a vast number of Israelites will embrace Jesus by faith and be saved. This is incredible. You could bank on it. It's a prophecy from the Lord. This will happen. What a joy. What a promise. Imagine when it happens and they look back on this text. They'll be like Cyrus and say, the Lord said it would happen. And look, here it is. In verse 28, Paul goes on to say, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Paul's point is twofold. First, he wants to prevent any sense of arrogance or superiority among Gentile believers. Even though the Jews may be opponents of the gospel at this point, they're not to be treated with disdain. God's love for them remains grounded in the promises made to their forefathers. And this challenges Gentile believers to exercise humility and compassion rather than harboring animosity. It also calls us to bring the gospel to them. Second, Paul stresses the, or the unchanging nature of God's gift and calling. Regardless of Israel's present rejection of the gospel, God's covenantal promises and calling on the Jewish people are irrevocable. This points us to God's faithfulness and the certainty of his sovereign plan. Paul wants us to grasp the nature of God's commitment and recognize that despite current circumstances, God's love and purpose for Israel persist. You might have also noticed in verse 32, Paul says, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. The all here refers both to Jew and Gentile. All of humanity, Jew and Gentile, have been condemned in Adam, but through Jesus, the new Adam, the curse has been reversed One day more Israelites will be saved. They will join the remnant and they will join a host of Gentile believers and they will all together and we will all together rejoice in God's mercy. 
Paul carries a burden for his people. And when he gets to this point, he is overwhelmed with the goodness and mercy of God. He, he marvels at God's faithfulness, at his promises and his purpose, and he's in awe of his plan. In verse 33, he exclaims, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Paul wants his readers and by extension all believers to take away a deep appreciation for the unfathomable nature of God's judgment and his ways. The the term unsearchable and inscrutable emphasize the truth that God's plans and decisions are often beyond human understanding and investigation. This text should evoke humility and a sense of reverence among believers, acknowledging the limitations of our comprehension in the the face of God's infinite wisdom. This text encourages believers to trust in God's sovereign understanding even when his ways seem mysterious and beyond our grasp. The awe expressed in this text serves as a call to faith and surrender, urging believers to acknowledge the vastness of God's knowledge and wisdom, recognizing that his plans surpass human comprehension. By embracing this perspective, You're invited to stand in awe of God's majestic nature and to approach him with humility and trust, even in the face of life's uncertainties and complexities. God's good plan for you will succeed, just like it did here with these promises. He's made promises, and you see that he's keeping them, even if it looked bad at the time and you couldn't see how it was possible. Look what's gonna happen. The same is true for you. God's made you promises, ones that he will keep. He will keep them. Even if you look at your life and your circumstances and you can't see it. Be encouraged. God will keep his promises to you. It is certain Paul concludes in verse 36 stating that God is the source of all things and the agent by which everything is created and sustained. He's the ultimate purpose for which all things have been made. As we reflect on God's masterstroke of redemption unveiled in Romans 11, we find assurance that everything is going according to his plan. Unlike Manifest Destiny, which unfolded in American history with broken promises and revoked treaties, God's promises stand firm, unwavering, and irrevocable. We began by exploring the preservation of a remnant, recognizing that God's faithful plan involved the preservation of a chosen remnant in Israel. 
And we witnessed how God brought redemption through rejection, understanding God's strategy in utilizing Israel's stumbling as an opportunity for the Gentiles and as a catalyst for Israel's eventual salvation. This revelation unfolds the mystery to us. The partial hardening of Israel is not final. A future restoration awaits. (laughs) In all like Paul, we declare, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. His judgments and ways are beyond our understanding, yet we find peace in his unchanging character. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, and his mercy triumphs. So be thankful. Be thankful and reassured. God's sovereign purpose will prevail. His master stroke of redemption encompasses Jew and Gentile. And as we stand in awe of his unfathomable wisdom, we echo Paul's sentiment. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Lord, we would come before you humbled, Lord. We often act like those who know it all. Lord, we would humble ourselves before you and remember that you do love us and that you have given us promises, promises like all things are working together for good for those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. Lord, we would ask that you would help us, that you would encourage us, that you would fill our hearts with gratitude and thanksgiving. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you. Build our faith. Make us strong in Christ. We'd ask you to hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.